You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico, with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes, is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup, and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast. And boy, are you in for a treat today. On this episode of the podcast is legendary chef Jacques Pepin. You know, what they dream of at night, you know, they dream of of their mother, Glimpsader, their father, fried chicken or whatever. So at that point, the food transcends the physiological function of food. It's more than food. It means memory. It means love. It means home. It means security. It means all of this. So the food become very important, those memories. That is Jacques Pepin. He is one of the world's most iconic, beloved chefs, and he's really helped change the way America cooks and eats. He is originally from France, and he is renowned for teaching essential techniques to the everyday cook. Jacques presents his recipes not as a list of ingredients and steps, but as narratives that lead the cook through the actual recipe. He is the winner of 16 James Beard Awards and author of more than 30 cookbooks, including The Apprentice, Essential Pepin, and Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple. 
Jacques is a chef, an author, a television personality, an educator, and an artist, and he has starred in 12 acclaimed PBS cooking series. His dedication to culinary education is enormous, and it has led to the creation of the Jacques Pepin Foundation in 2016. It is my honor to bring you this conversation today with Jacques Pepin. Bonjour, Jacques. Bonjour, bonjour. What a treat, Jacques. Thank you so much for joining me on To Dine for the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, it is an absolute honor to be with you this morning. And, uh, you know, I was just doing a deep dive into your story, and it is really a fascinating one. It's really hard to know where to begin. Oh, boy. But I'm going to begin the way I begin all of these podcasts, and I'm going to ask you a question, and I would think for you it would be a very difficult one. And I always start by asking the guest, where is their favorite restaurant? Because I really believe that someone's favorite restaurant begins to tell their story. Not the whole story, but just a little bit about a nod to their culture and who they are. Your history really spans the world, and you live in Connecticut and you've traveled everywhere, and you've cooked everywhere. So I imagine this is an extremely difficult question, but if you could take right. me to one spot, where would you take me, Jacques? Well, the best restaurant for me is uh, where they know me. You know. Where they know you. <laughs> All right. The uh, uh, best restaurant is probably where it's free, too. They know me free, so that's the best restaurant. So, no, I have, I have, you know, in the little town we live here in Madison, too, there is a great sushi place, there is a great Chinese place. I go from one, there is a, an Italian place that I go to, you know, but otherwise I like to eat at home most of the time. Of so, course, I bet you do. Right. What is the name of the Italian place in Madison? Allegro. Allegro. Yeah. And yeah. I bet you they absolutely love to see Jacques Papin walk in. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. But <laughs> Yeah, it's nice. It's good. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's not pretentious. It's good. I love that. Simple, straightforward, and not pretentious. Um, yeah. of, if anyone had the opportunity to pick a pretentious restaurant with all of your fine dining experience, I would think it would be you. And the fact that you didn't pick that says a lot about you, Jacques. So thank you. You were born in Bourg-en-Bresse, France. Your parents own a restaurant called Le Pelican. I'm really curious, at what point in your childhood, growing up around restaurants, did you realize that you, A, had a talent for cooking, and B, had a passion for cooking? I don't really think that I ever realized that I had a talent for cooking or a passion Really? Life was much easier 80 years ago. I'm 87, so yeah, 80 years ago, I was already in the kitchen with my mother and uh, at that time we didn't have the telephone we didn't have television we didn't have a radio we didn't have the telephone so my father was a cabinet maker my my mother was a cook so you know my choice in life was very simple cabinet maker or a cook (laughs) i never thought that i could be i don't know a doctor a lawyer or whatever it was so far away from our life so I like the kitchen and uh, I like working with uh, my mother too. So I basically left home when I was 13 to go into formal apprenticeship. And uh, that was that was relatively common at that time. But at some point you had to realize that you, A, do have a talent for this and clearly do have a passion. When, at what point in your career did you really say, hey, 
this is really turning into something. I don't know. I mean, you know, you work, uh, certainly when I did my apprenticeship and eventually start working all over different restaurants in France, eventually I went to Paris. You had to go to Paris, work in big place like the Plaza Athene, Fouquet's, Maxim, mm-hmm. you know, which I did. And at that time, you keep going from one place to the other to learn more, to learn more. And uh, I don't know whether at that time it was quite different than now. I mean, in the kitchen, you went into the kitchen to conform not to create or mm. do, uh, that, that did not really exist. At the Plaza Athene in Paris, I think it's, they still do it, but they were very well known to do the lobster souffle, for example, mm-hmm. where we were 48 chefs in the kitchen. The 48 of us would have done the lobster souffle, you would never have known who has done it. And that was the idea wow. of learning. It's not like you send the dish to the dining room, like a young chef now, and say, so make sure I sign it, make sure they know I'm the one who did it, created yeah. There was no creation at that point. You know, at the Plaza Atene, we cut a tomato one way. I would never have thought of turning the tomato to cut it the other way. So, oh, why would you do that? So uh, it was conforming. It was a different way of... Uh, uh, that was certainly this way until Nouvelle Cuisine in the 70s when it started changing, you know, so... First of all, that is fascinating. So at the very beginning of your career, it was about conformity. Around the world, French cuisine is really heralded as the best cooking in the world. And there is a distinct reason for that. And I think you've kind of alluded to that. But can you explain to people who aren't aware, why is French cooking and French cuisine considered some of the best in the world? Well, it used to be, at least certainly, when I came to New York in 1959, uh, there was no great Italian restaurant. I mean, there was place where you know, meatball and, uh, and uh, pasta and meatball, stuff like that, Chinese, Japanese, and a great restaurant, but not fancy Chinese, Italian. It was anything which was fancy, was kind of continental, usually with a French menu, usually with everything misspelled. <laughs> that was the way, you know, <laughs> it was a work at the pavilion. So it is different now. I mean, in New York, over 20,000 restaurants, the amount of ethnicity is just amazing. But certainly for the, for the French, I mean, I was a dean at the French Culinary Institute in New York for many, many years. And you have great stars like, I don't know, Bobby Frey, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Willie Dufresne, and uh, many mm-hmm. people like that who are great American chefs now and uh, don't have a French restaurant. But mm-hmm. they would go there to learn the proper technique of cooking. That is, you know, a certain uh, vocabulary of the kitchen where everyone agreed to, a Julien is this, a Mirepoix is this, and so yes. forth. So there is that... Uh, Maybe that's what I'm known maybe the most for. I did a book called La Technique in 1974, I believe. La Technique, La Méthode, and it's still in print. It's still in print, and I don't cook the way I cook 50, 55 years ago. But the way you sharpen a knife or peel an asparagus, poached an egg, it's the same thing. That doesn't change. That's why that book is still in print and uh, still being useful. So, uh, and this is where the French cooking, basically, that people come there to learn that, that basic component technique of cooking, you know, and then after you move on to whatever cuisine you want to do. Right. It's the technique, it's the discipline. And as right. you started by explaining, it's the conformity. It is really the basics done 
elevated. And, you know, American cooking is known for obviously this amazing fusion of different flavors. Right. And it, it, it lacks the conformity, right? Like that would be the one thing that, that that separates French cooking from American cooking. There is no conformity to American cooking, right? Well, yes, yes and no. I don't agree with you there. I mean, even an American cook, you have to know how to peel an asparagus the right way, sharpen mm -hmm. a knife, do all of those basic techniques. That's what you learn. And that's what we taught at the French Culinary Institute, and as I said, you have big star like Bobby Flair or other, which came out of there and are not doing French cooking. Right. But uh, they have that basic training, yes. Yeah, you begin at the beginning. Right. I am, I, I've really enjoyed your new book, Jacques Papin, The Art of the chicken and all of your beautiful right. illustrations. Right. There's so I did I you know I did not know you were a painter and you have all these amazing fun whimsical pictures of chickens throughout this book. When did you start painting? I have painting from the early 60s. I went to when I came to this country. I went to Columbia University. I, you know I left school when I was 13, so I went there for many many years. And uh, at some point, I took a couple of classes in sculpture, I think, and, and drawing. So I started the early 60s. I have painting, uh, and uh, I probably paint more now than I used to. But at some point, you know, I was married for 54 years. So we did, uh, uh, when people came to the house, I already wrote the menu, and uh, people write funny things on the other side. We put the label of the wine we had, and so forth. And I kind of illustrated those menu and I realized I was illustrating very often by putting the chicken here and there. So I started planning more chicken. I have actually 12 books that thick of uh, over 50 years of my life of those wow. menu people who are in there. And my daughter, who is in her mid-50s, Claudine, a few weeks ago came and said, what did I eat for my third birthday? So I said, let's look. So we find our third birthdays. And oh, she, my goodness. she actually draw little chicken and all that. <laughs> So, you know, those books, my whole life is in those books. So we started illustrating and uh, I, I have 31 cookbook. So I didn't want to do another cookbook. I wanted to do a book of drawing or painting or whatever. So uh, of chicken like that. And the publisher said, fine, great. But as soon as I start sending pictures of chicken, they say, can we have recipe with it? And I said, I don't want the recipe. You know? <laughs> so I have a book. Uh, called The Apprentice that I did in in 2000 about, which is really a cook's memoir, story of my life and so forth. And so I decided to do something similar here instead of a conventional recipe, though there are more a narrative style. I'm telling you, you know, my mother used to do this, this and that. So there are recipes that you can follow, but that's not the idea. The idea is more stories about chicken and about eggs and uh, I wanted to talk about the fact that chicken may be the most democratic food of all because you can find chicken in a truck stop. And mm -hmm. certainly if you go to the hospital, they'll give you chicken. But then if you're in a three-star restaurant, you'll have chicken with truffle under the skin or whatever. So, and eggs is even more so, you know, so, and I don't know of any part of the world, West Africa to Russia to, we don't, don't you know, use eggs and chicken. Your career has spanned so many different dimensions, not only as a chef and as an educator, all of your PBS specials, uh, as you said, an author, you have won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Emmys, and you really have done so many dynamic things. When you think about 
when you're most comfortable and most feel like yourself? Is it simply being in the kitchen by yourself? Is it being on television, explaining something and educating others? Is it sitting down, painting? When do you really feel like most Jacques Papin? Well, certainly in my kitchen with friends cooking together. I mean, this is what my life is all about and, uh, and the family. I mean, you know, it was always very important when Claudine was a year old, my daughter. I hold her in my home and I made her st stir the pot. And so she, quote, made it. So she was going to eat it because she made it. So like <laughs> with my, my granddaughter, you know, now she's at BU. She's at Boston University. Mm -hmm. But she was four or five years old. And she cooked next to me. She stand on a little stool next to me. I said, give me the salad. Is it clean? To look at it. To And uh, take her to the garden. I said, give me some parsley. I said, no, that's shy. I've tested. That's parsley. That's tarragon. Yeah. And then take her to the market with me. I say, okay, get me some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell those pears? You think they are ripe or those tomatoes? So, you know, the kid get involved into touching the food talking about it, and of course it expands to then sitting down and sharing the food together. So that's really a big part of our life. You know, that's it's, this is who we are, you know, so, yeah. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute, but first, thank you to our sponsors. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. To Dine For, the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National Agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. 
This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. A quote from your book that I love. You said, to cook for someone is the purest expression of love. I love this quote. What did you mean by it? Well, you know, you can cook for your grandmother or your lover or your grandkid or a stranger. It doesn't make anything. There is no, you know, it's purely giving when you cook for someone. You cannot cook indifferently. You know, you have to cook with uh, with love, with passion and so forth. And then when you do that, I mean, you realize that when you go to other country. I remember traveling to uh, Yugoslavia years ago by car with my wife and it was in small village somewhere and uh, you know people are looking behind the, the curtain you know foreigner there the foreigner is dangerous you know so then we stop at the little uh, inn or the little bistro you know in the in the village and uh, so people look at you and then you start ordering whatever wine they have there some food and people start gathering around and you give them a bottle of wine and all of that through hand language and uh, within an hour later uh, fine they are friends with you you know mm. you, you share food and wine so food is a common denominator there it's a common language you know so it's important yes i feel like it's the great connector you know it is a chance it is the one place that we can really disarm and to really connect with someone and to show them who we are. It's the reason why on my PBS show, we we always dine at someone's favorite restaurant. I always start the conversation by talking about, you know, where people like to eat and what they love to eat. Because you, as you just said, it is the common denominator, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the table is a great equalizer. You know, you don't know who you're sitting next to. You may be sitting on one side, you have the dishwasher from the restaurant next door. On the other side, maybe the governor or Connecticut, whoever. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really matter. You know, the table is a great equalizer this way. And uh, certainly uh, in the 18th century, I mean, uh, uh, Louis XVIII uh, was sending uh, Carême, one of the greatest French chefs, you know, to the Congress of Vienna, you know, in the early 1800s. And uh, at, that, at that point, it's, the king told him, I'm going to give you more advisors. He said, no, no, I need more cook. No more advice. I need cook, you know, to go. And this is what happens. You bring yeah. people to the table, you know, and uh, and even if there is some dissension and argument at the table, it's usually pretty mild because you know you're sharing wine, you're sharing food, and uh, so you can disagree. It's fine, but uh, the table is uh, is very good this way. We should have more of that between the between the two parties that we have in this country. You know? uh, without be, a doubt, without a it, doubt. It should be required, you know. It should be required. Yeah, 10 people, yeah. five Republicans, five uh, uh, Democrats have to eat together. <laughs> <laughs> Make them eat together at, our, at a table. You know, it's funny. Yeah. Um, one thing I have noticed about people, regardless of how famous they are or wealthy or powerful, one thing that everyone needs, actually two things, one is to be listened to and to be heard, and the other is to feel supported. And that's a universal need that we have. And when we sit down to a meal, it's a chance to really listen to someone and to really 
make them in some small way feel supported. I'm wondering, you have sh cooked from, you've been the personal chef for Charles de Gaulle. You worked for Howard Johnson in a corporate manner with the creating menus and, and working on research for that corporation. You have literally cooked for heads of state as well as the average person. I'm wondering, what have you learned about people through your many, many years of cooking and serving? Well, someone introduced me a while ago, said that man was chef to three French presidents, and the three of them are dead. That's how it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have nothing But you're know. still alive, Jacques. <laughs> well, it, it is quite different. I mean, you know, when I worked in the, for the president in France between 56, 58, the cook was really at the bottom of the social scale again there. You know, and you would never have had, I served people like Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, who were the head of state at the time. You would never, never be called for, for kudo in the dining room. I mean, that didn't exist. The cook was in the kitchen. That was it. If anyone came to the kitchen was to complain about one thing or another. Mm. So the world, the world was totally, totally different. Any good mother would have wanted her child to marry the lawyer. Uh, the account certainly not a cook. You know, mm. I don't know what happened. Now we are genius. <laughs> <laughs> you are now rock stars. Oh, it has boy. been the evolution of the chef. <laughs> yeah, so so this is quite different than than it used to be, and it's certainly one of the reasons when I came to America. I I, I came here for a year, maybe two years, and uh, you know, it, uh, sixty years ago, I'm here. So I, I love uh, you know people were so democratic in some way, very welcoming and so forth. And uh, I work at the Pavilion in New York, which was a great place too. Mm -hmm. And after that, in the early 60s, I was offered a job at the White House, and uh, I was offered a job at Howard Johnson. Mm -hmm. I went do so, but you have to look at it in the context of the time. I had done it uh, in France, and I'd never been on a magazine, newspaper, television barely existed. That did not exist, you know. So I did really want to do that again, but to, to be truthful, I never. Re realize the potential of this because that did not exist. And in fact, the person who went there, René Verdon, he was a sous chef at the Essex House in New York with a friend of mine, eventually took the job there. And at that point, I remember him sending me a picture of himself with uh, Mrs. Kennedy and president. So it was starting early 60s, you know. Mm. But if you ask who was the chef before René Verdon at the White House, which I asked, apparently it was a black lady from the South no mm -hmm. one would have known who she was, no mm -hmm. more than, than you, me, or anyone else. It was another world. So I decided to go to Howard Johnson, as I said, because I didn't really realize also. And the fact that it was a great experience for me. I worked there for 10 years, from 1960 1970. When I came out, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie in New York, mm -hmm. as production of soup. Then I was like, uh, up in the World Trade Center with Joe Baum, who served like 40,000 people a day in the commissary. I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room. I'm saying that to say that I would never have been able to do any of those jobs with my training as a French chef. You know, Howard Johnson made me in that sense. You know, uh, I learned a great deal. It changed my life. It is. It's really fascinating when you think of all the different ways that that the role of a chef has changed. And, you know, I think as a culture, we celebrate creativity now more yeah. than ever. And as you said at the very beginning of this interview, 
your role at the very beginning of your career was conformity. And, right. and, and now you have space to really be creative and to do what you'd like. And as illustrated in your beautiful book, The Art of the Chicken, with all these paintings, obviously that is a creative outlet for you. Your work brought you to be friends with, with some really fascinating people, including Julia Child. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with her and what did you learn from Julia? Well, I met Julia in 1960. You know, I mean, a few months after I was here, I had met Craig Leibon, who just started at the New York Times as a food critic. He came to do an article at the New York Times uh, at, the, the, at the Pavilion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so through him, I met Helen McCullough, who was the food editor of McCall, How Beautiful, and she kind of became my, my surrogate mother. You know, she was never married. She was much older. And from her, I met James Beard, was in New York, and eventually one day Helen told me, oh, I have that book here. I just received a manuscript of a book. You want to take a look at it? And it was Mastering the Art of French Cooking. She said, the woman is from Boston. She's coming next week. You want to cook? Or I said, sure. And she said, it's a very tall woman with a terrible voice. She said, but (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I met Julia. And it was 1960. I was here six months, and I knew... (laughs) In a sense, the trinity, the trinity of cooking in America, James Beard, Julia Child, and Craig LeBron. Yeah. You know, so the food, the food world was very, very small at the time. It was another another world altogether. You know? So uh, we met, and uh, actually, I think we spoke French uh, more than English, because our French was better than the English at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I became friends with Julia for you know, half a century, you know, so and we work together. You know, I've been teaching at BU for Boston University almost 40 years. So I used to go there and then we taught together there. We gave class together. We, we work on a special program there. We created a Master of Liberal Art with a concentration in gastronomy at BU. So we worked together a long time in many books and we had a good time. Yeah, and you had a TV show, Julia and Jacques cooking at home. I'm sure that was a lot of fun. Did she teach you anything? Did you learn anything from her? That's hilarious that you say she did have a very unusual voice, didn't she? (laughs) Yeah, of course. She's. uh, She would always tell me, "Well, look, you cannot be too serious. This is television. This is entertainment. Mm. You know, we have to do." But. That being said, certainly at the end of each program, she said, okay, what did we teach today? So the teaching elements were always very important for her. You know, I've done 13 series of 26 shows of the 100 employees for PBS in the last 40 years. But when we did the one with Julia, we had no recipe. You know, so that was unusual. Because usually when you do a series, you have at least the manuscript of the book to so that the back kitchen and all that have an idea of what you're going to cook. There we decide the day before, okay, what are we cooking? Let's do stew tomorrow or whatever. So there was no recipe, meaning that there was a lot of freedom, meaning that the the cameramen were crazy because they didn't know where we would go left or right. (laughs) So it was, why did I that scallion in that dish? They happened to be on the table. We throw them in or whatever. So it was a different way of cooking, more like you do with with a friend or a spouse, you know, at your house. Uh, so there was that element. The second element is that we had a lot of wine, so we could drink wine. And the third element is that we had no time. I mean, I did several series with PBS uh, where we had to do it on time because editing was expensive. So, you know, you have a, a guy with a sign saying, okay, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 3 minutes, wrap up. But there, Julia said, okay, we're going to cook. 
when it's finished, we'll tell you. So sometime we did show which were like 70, 80 minutes. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the B-roll, but that would be interesting to see though. Because, so we had no time restaurant, we had wine, and we had no recipe. We could cook, so it was a very casual type of... Uh, friendly type of show. Oh, I bet it was a blast. I bet it was a blast. I want to talk a little bit about your work ethic, where it came from. And one thing that I see across your career is just an incredible work ethic that is really unmatched. Here you are in your 80s, you're up doing this interview. I always say that I I hope to have a job that I never want to retire from. And I get the feeling that you are a kindred spirit in that way. Do you feel the same way about work, that you love it, that you want to keep showing up, or or has your philosophy changed through the years? No, I mean, frankly, this is the greatest gift that you can have in life, you know. Uh, The greatest gift is if you can do make a living out of something you love to do. Well, you never have to go to work, you know, mm. so it's uh, it's what you like to do and uh, whether I'm pay or not, I would continue doing what I'm doing. It is at, at that point, you know, it's uh, it's very important. That's how I communicate with people. That's how, you know, and, you know all my friends and all that, we have a whole bunch of friends here that we play pétanque, which is a kind of a bachi ball, Mm-hmm. French game, you know, so uh, 30, 40 people, we always meet together, you know, and, and cook together and eat together. And now I have a son-in-law uh, with a chef, you know, so, and he teaches at Johnson and & Well. And uh, him and my daughter, Claudine, created uh, the Jacques Pepin Foundation, which I would never have done, you know, so that has been very rewarding also. So that was that was a co-creation with your daughter, Claudine? Yeah, Claudine and, and her husband, uh, you know, Rory, I mean, created, I mean, I'm involved, of course, in it. But, right. But, uh, but can you explain what it is? Because, uh, you know, it, it, it really is the ultimate to be able to give back in a profound way after such an illustrious career. What does the Jacques Pepin Foundation do? Well, we decided at some point, because I have so many, oh, let's say, hundreds of show and show of technique to teaching people in different schools at the French Culinary Institute, too. At some point, Rolly told me a number of years ago, seven, eight, ten years ago, who would you like to teach now, frankly? Uh, uh, and I say, you know, people who have been, have been disenfranchised by life, people who come out of jail, you know, homeless people, former drug addicts, and people like this, not young people in their 20s, 30, 40, 50s. You know, you can train someone in five, six weeks with the, with the, we send our book, we send video, we send all of that. We work through community kitchen. And you know, someone in, if you like to be in the kitchen within four or five weeks, I can teach you how to, you know, from clean salad to, to peel up uh, asparagus or do stuff like this within, and then you can redo a life. And then after you stay there, you go up and eventually maybe five years later, you're the chef there. You know, and it's a way of kind of redoing your life and getting back a bit of pride. And uh, so it's a good thing. And it's been very, uh, it's been very successful. And, and I'm very grateful to him because I would never have created that myself, but uh, he did. So I am lucky this way. And I have another friend here, Tom Hopkins in Madison, who's worked with me for 40 years doing my book. He's a photographer. And, uh, and he's the one who created the Jacques Pepin outside. I have an outside to so, so I, again, I would never have done it. <laughs> Tom did it. And in the last uh, two, three years, 
including my daughter told me, well, why don't you do some little uh, recipe, uh, you know, from Facebook? She does Facebook. And, on, and we've done 300 shows of like uh, three, four, five minutes that she showed on Facebook, uh, showing one thing or another. So that has been very successful too. And this is my daughter who did that, or Tom too. So I've been very supported and very lucky in this way. Jacques, I am so embarrassed because this has just hit me right now. At four times during this interview, you have made reference to peeling an asparagus. And yeah, I well, realize I don't peel my asparagus. And okay. I am ashamed. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the tip of the asparagus, it, uh, then the, the people cut the end of it and, uh, you know, half of it and throw it in the garbage. And I understand that. I remember working at the Russian tea room uh, in the 80s and I was a consultant there. I had three guys behind the stove and we serve a thousand people a day. If I had come there and said, okay, we have to peel the asparagus, I probably would have been assassinated in the, in the locker room. <laughs> You know, so everything everything is relative. You do it on that. But for me, if I, if I buy asparagus, yeah, I will peel it so that I can use most of it. I am going to start peeling my asparagus this yes. weekend. Okay. Right. The, the, right. You have changed someone forever. I'm going to start peeling right. my asparagus. Um, you know, I'm really curious, you know, when Claudine was young and when she was little, was there an overarching lesson you were always trying to teach her was there if there was one lesson that you would try to impart to a young person what was it well certainly uh, i don't think that gloria and i ever bought uh, uh, baby food you know when she was small if i do spaghetti and cream sauce or gloria made spaghetti and cream sauce better than mine before putting too much salt or anything in it i would put some in the in the blender at the time and so you know, mm. from the moment she was born, she was used to those tastes so that by the time she's six, seven years old, she's regular spaghetti and crepe. She knows those tastes, you know. So, yes, it has always been part of uh, sitting down every day for, for dinner and, and spending at least an hour at the table. And uh, we never discuss the menu. It's not like if she ate the Brussels sprout, uh, uh, people will go on their knees. Oh, my God, the kid eat Brussels sprout. No, but, but we never <laughs> mentioned that. Whatever we had for dinner is what we had for dinner. And, you know, the, the kitchen is probably the most uh, maybe secure, the most uh, uh, loving place of, uh, of, uh, of the house, you know, for the mm. kid coming back after school. You hear your mother's uh, voice or your father's and the cling of the, the kitchen equipment and the smell and the taste there. And those, those kind of uh, are very visceral memory, which stay with you the rest of your life, you know. So, yeah, you bring the, the kid in the, in the kitchen to, to be with there, with you, to do the homework or whatever. You know? So that's a good place to be. Oh, that is great. It's a great image to, to create uh, just happy memories in the kitchen around food. And, and there's nothing like to, to bring it back to chicken, but there's nothing like roasting the smell of, you know, whether it's onions and garlic and chicken in a home, it really makes a house a home, doesn't it? Right. I mean, if you think of those younger soldier, you know, in Afghanistan or place in the world, which goes, you know, what they dream of at night, you know, they dream of, of their mother, grandfather, their father, fried chicken or whatever. So at that point, the food transcends the physiological function of food. It's more than food. It means memory. It means love. It means home. It means security. It means all of this. So the food becomes very important, those memories. Yes. 
Yeah, they become essential. They really do. What advice would you offer to a young chef today who is just starting out, who has uh, the, the interest, the passion, the aptitude that you had, obviously a very different landscape, but is there something, some word of wisdom you would offer him or her? Yes. I mean, you know, I would, if you don't have, you know, if you're not pressed by money that you have to make much money, if you work for less money with the best possible chef that you can find, Mm. Uh, male or female, and all you have to do is yes, chef. You know, that's it. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to ask you, uh, how do I do that? Of course, so you have to look at the food through the eye of that chef, through the sense of aesthetic of that chef, the sense of taste, whether it coincides with your taste or with your sense of aesthetic, it's very material. You work like that for a year or two, and you absorb a lot of knowledge. And then you work with another one, again, a couple of years, and then with another one two or three or four in a row like this, and you have absorbed a lot of different point of view, a lot of ideas to, and then you give it back at that point, and then you're going to filter it through your sense of taste, through your sense of aesthetic, because ultimately you cannot escape yourself. You are who you are, and it's going to be a certain way. I mean, if I take you to the 10 greatest restaurants in the, in the country or in New York, you're going to pick up three, and uh, and I'm going to pick up three, and I say, those are extraordinary. And then another three, yes, those are very good. And another couple, mm, yes. So, And yours may be totally different, because ultimately, it's an exercise in uh, narcissism, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happened that the one I like coincided exactly with my sense of taste, my sense of aesthetic, my sense. So, you know, ultimately, you cannot escape yourself this way. But uh, for a young chef, yes, I would advise someone to get to know, you know, from other chefs, other point of view, other taste and all that, and to absorb that, that's how you learn, you know, so. That's fantastic. Great, yeah. great, great advice. You know, you've just written the book, Art of the Chicken, but what if you, what is your go-to, what is your favorite thing to make for yourself on a Friday night when you just want something good to eat? Well, my, my life has changed too, and as you get older, your metabolism change, your taste change also. Uh, as a young chef, you maybe tend to add to the plate, to add, to add, to add. As you get older and older, you kind of remove, remove from the plate <laughs> to be left with something more essential and without too much embellishment in the plate, you know. And mm. if you have a great tomato really ripe out of the garden and uh, with olive oil on top and a bit of salt that you don't need more embellishment than that. So, you know, Mm. things change as you get older and so forth. So, but basically, simplicity. And I mean, I always was interested in the the season, you know, whatever is in season, because that's when it tastes the best, the food, that's when it's the cheapest in price. And that's certainly when it's uh, the best, I mean, uh, uh, for you, I mean, uh, and the food are ripe and, uh, it, you know, so, so yes, follow the scene, you know, if you can. There is nothing like pulling a warm tomato out of the garden, yeah. slicing yeah. it open, a dash of salt, and, and yeah. you can almost taste the sunlight in yeah. a tomato. That is, that's beautiful. Jacques, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and I wish thank you continued success. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, have a great day. Happy cooking. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. 
For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todine4tv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todine4tv and Facebook at todine4withkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.